And I think that the people back in Washington and the parents of the kids who are over here in uniform ought to know that some of them are complaining that they don't have the weaponry they should have. The Marines are convinced that some snipers got away, and they know they'll have to pursue them aggressively again tomorrow. Morton Dean, ABC News, Jelan, Kosovo. And we ought to be there to show what it smells like, what it looks like, what it feels like, what the pain is like, what the anguish is like. I mean, that's an important task for a, a reporter. Hi, I'm Russ Mason. This is the third of three episodes with retired newsman and current documentary filmmaker Morton Dean. So if you haven't already listened to our last two episodes, I'd encourage you to do so, especially because they're full of Mort's entertaining stories and interesting insights related to his many years as a correspondent for CBS and ABC, as well as our discussions about his recent documentary, American Medevac. Last year, we devoted two News Knowledge episodes to the Iranian hostage crisis, both of which included portions of a conversation I had with another former CBS newsman, Tom Fenton, about some of his experiences while covering that story. As it turns out, Morton Dean was also in Tehran at that time, reporting for CBS during the first month of the hostage crisis, and he talked with me about one particular report of his which brought him closer than he could know at the time to the story made famous in Ben Affleck's 2012 movie, Argo. If you're in a country where there is no American representation, you, you go to see a friendly country's ambassador. And that happened when I was in Tehran, and I hooked up with a, a cameraman. I said, let's go over to the Canadian embassy. And he said, why? And I said, I just want to see if the ambassador will sit down and do an interview with me just so I can get some more texture to this story, perhaps a whole new angle. And I remember showing up at the embassy. I had no idea there were six Americans hiding out there. And I remember we looked at the door and it was sort of like a a homemade alarm system. There were wires hanging everywhere. And I said to the cameraman, Steve Smith, I said, this looks like something I'd do at home. And then the door opened and uh, it was one of the security people and the ambassador came and uh, after seeing the film, after seeing Argo, uh, you know, I, I think the ambassador probably agreed to see me, even though I hadn't called, because he probably thought I knew something about the six Americans being there. And when I left, he probably said, that's amazing. He didn't know anything about the Americans being here. I guess they're, 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 they're safe. So when I read the story about the Americans being there, I, uh, I thought, sometimes you come close to a story and you don't even smell it. You know, <laughs> I mean, I had no... No idea. In addition to interviewing the Canadian ambassador, Dean recalled the conversation he had while preparing to file this same report for CBS with Iran's Ayatollah Beheshti, who at that time was second only to the Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran's political power structure. The Ayatollah Beheshti was another case where there wasn't a lot of breaking news, so I would try to set up interviews with people in the government hoping that I could just come up with a line or two that might prove to be a lead for that evening's story or the next day's story. And I went to see Ayatollah Beheshti. He spoke English 
quite well. And he said to me, in, as we were talking prior to the interview, that he is upset that, that our children, as he put it, are being so poorly treated in America. By that, he meant uh, Iranian citizens. And I, I said, what, what do you mean? He said, they are being beaten. They are being tortured. And I said, oh, I know what you're talking about, Ayatollah Beheshti. And he said, oh, you do? And I said, yes. There is a book that is being sold on the streets of Tehran, a kind of a, a thick soft cover book with many photographs in it. He said, yes, 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 our children being beaten. And I said, do you know what those photos are? And he said, well, they're, they're uh, uh, our people. And I said, no, no, no. Those are photos from the 1960s in South, down South in America, uh, South, Southern part of the United States, when, when, Police and fire departments were turning hoses on, on black demonstrators and cops were wading into demonstrations with their bats, billy bats, and hitting people over the head. And he just stared at me. And I, and I said, I know because just yesterday I saw that book. It was being sold and I, I, we, I brought a copy back to our office. And he just stared at me. I said, really, I know that's the 60s. It's got nothing to do with what's going on now. And he said, he looked up and said, well, I too have to learn these things. Ayatollah Beheshti, along with over 70 other members of the Islamic Republic Party, were killed just a year and a half later by a bomb that was set off during a conference they were attending. Here's Walter Cronkite's introduction and a portion of the report itself, including Dean's interview with Canadian Ambassador Kenneth Taylor, as it aired on December 6, 1979. The Iran crisis is in its 33rd day now, and that country's number two man today made a pessimistic prediction. He says it will not be over by Christmas. Morton Dean reports from Tehran. The man regarded as Iran's second most powerful figure, the Ayatollah Beheshti, offered some depressing news about the hostages, that they will not be home to celebrate Christmas unless the Shah is back to face trial. Today, I don't find any possibility in Iran and in the thought and belief and feelings of our nation for such an agreement. If diplomacy is succeeding at all, it's not apparent here. This week, ambassadors from 12 Western nations met with Iran's foreign minister and left empty-handed. What we are seeking is a chance to express our government's concern at the entire event and also to seek some possibly an improvement of the condition of the hostages. What was the answer to that? That um, this is um, something which is, is understood, however, as, as the Iranian government has made known, they, they feel it is the expression of the people, and that the government is, is, is coincident with that. Ambassador Taylor, who passed away in 2015 at the age of 81, lived to see himself portrayed both in the movie Argo and a Canadian television program, 
Escape from Iran, the Canadian caper. During our last News Knowledge episode, Morton Dean acknowledged some misgivings about an editorial choice he had to make in 1971 while reporting for CBS from an aircraft carrier off the coast of Vietnam. And in 1990, he made another memorable decision while reporting for ABC on the U.S. military buildup in preparation for combat operations against Iraq following Iraq's invasion of Kuwait earlier that year. Uh, I went out to do a story because of, of, of some, an infantry unit that was getting ready for the invasion of Kuwait. And they were situated, stationed right on the border. And there was a live fire exercise, you know, real bullets. And they were uh, attacking a uh, make, make-believe village. And I uh, was talking to what I thought was the ranking officer there after witnessing this. And I said, so I guess uh, you're really ready to go. You've got everything you need. And he said, he stunned me. He said, and this was on camera. He, he said, no, you know, you guys, meaning reporters, are always reporting that we own the night was the term because they... There were weapons that allowed you to, to see in the darkness, lenses on the weapons. And, and uh, you always say we own the, own the night, but uh, let, let, let me tell you something. Uh, uh, there are a lot of things here I wish I had that I don't have. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. And I said, really? Like, like what? He said, well, and he pointed over to a Humvee, which, which had a big weapon mounted on it. And he said, see that weapon? I said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, that's, uh, it's got one of those lenses where you can turn nighttime into daylight. And, and I said, yeah. And he said, but we don't have the batteries to operate these. And I said, really? And he just wanted to talk. And he also complained that uh, this was their first live fire exercise. He said, you know, we don't have enough uh, bullets to practice with, with live rounds. and." Uh, you really don't get a feel for combat unless you're using live live weaponry. So I went back to the bureau uh, in Dharan, Saudi Arabia, and, and I wrote up the piece, and I called New York and told them what I had. And when a couple of my colleagues heard me voicing the report, one, one of the guys did say, um, gee, I mean, do, do, why, do you really want to do this story? I said, well, I already did it. I said, yeah, but uh, aren't you letting the enemy know that the American troops aren't prepared? And I said, actually, I did think about that in the car on the way back to the office. Well, you know, I wouldn't have done that. And, and I said, I think there's another way of looking at this. This buildup has been going on for a while. And I think that the people back in Washington and the parents of the kids who are over here in uniform ought to know that some of them are complaining that they don't have the weaponry they should have. And he said, yeah, but, so we got into a little argument. And, and I said, I hope people in the White House do see this. I hope people in Congress do see this. And if they do, they're going to be angry as hell that, that the stuff isn't getting to the troops. And I, and I, I have... I've thought about this relatively frequently over the years. 
but I, I understood that he knew what he was saying. He was telling me something he wanted to get back, that my guys don't have the firepower that they should have. And now here's a portion of that report as it aired on ABC's World News Tonight on November 30th, 1990. This unit doesn't have everything it needs. It needs more ammunition for training. This is the first time we've live fired since we've been in Saudi Arabia. I don't know uh, where the ammo comes from, but we're not getting enough of it. The 1st Battalion, 6th Marine Regiment, has been here three months. We should be able to live fire everything to the point where we feel comfortable. And right now, we don't have that training allocation. Gunners, some of you seem timid. Somebody Another thing the unit does not have is the ability to make full use of its missiles at night. The missile system's night scopes run out of power. We have a problem charging our batteries because uh, we don't have the, uh, the uh, recharging kits to, to charge those. Obviously, you have to have generators, and we don't always have generators out here. Even so, these Marines are highly motivated, as indicated by the reaction to last night's UN resolution. Yeah, it's a good deal, but it's not really a deadline. It's an ultimatum. It's either, you know, either you get out or we're coming in. We're knocking on your back door. It is for the Marines a step closer to an end, either fighting or going home. Morton Dean, ABC News, with the Marines in Saudi Arabia. In 1999, Dean spent a month in war-torn Kosovo following the signing of a peace agreement, reporting on the less-than-peaceful aftermath of the conflict there between Yugoslav forces and Kosovo's Liberation Army, the KLA. Here's a portion of his June 21st report. As for making the whole province safe on this first day of NATO's agreement with the KLA, there are continuing signs that disarming the Albanian rebels is going to be a difficult job. The rebels are very adept at hiding their weapons. No weapons. Yeah. The weapons soon reappear. It's very clear that many Albanians still revere the KLA. As the Zane Nulahu family returned home after four months as refugees, they carried with them a treasured picture of a family member who fought and died for the KLA. And then, within just a few days, he and his camera crew found themselves in the midst of a firefight between KLA snipers and a platoon of U.S. Marines. Break, break, uh, Diablo 6 chainsaw. Hey, I got four guys with guns on top of the theater chainsaw. U.S. forces are supposedly assigned the most peaceful sector of Kosovo, the least dangerous, but it has not turned out that way, and the Marines have had to respond aggressively. Has this been happening every day? Or yeah, it's every day. pretty much on a regular basis. For an hour, heavy reinforcements poured into the area. Some Marines were dispatched to search every building, while others continued to take fire. Both directions, fire's coming in. So, Anybody hurt? No, so far we know everyone's okay. The Marines said at least one sniper was killed, another apprehended. The Marines are convinced that some snipers got away, and they know they'll have to pursue them aggressively again tomorrow. Morton Dean, ABC News, Jelan, Kosovo. During our phone conversation, I asked Mort how they came to be in the middle of this encounter. In Kosovo, as in many other places, we just went out looking for a story. And we were just driving into a town 
and the cameraman was in the front seat. And he was the first to say, something's going on there. Something's going on. Let me out. Let me out. And he just lit out. And then I saw there were people running, and, and uh, I said to the driver, get us close as you can and let, let me out. And, um, and the producer I was with, a guy by the name of John Kennedy, jumped out with me, and we went running to where we thought the cameraman might be. And there was a contingent of U.S. Marines, and they were, oh, about eight or nine of them in this kind of like a round wooden house in the center of this intersection with their guns pointed, wondering where the fire was coming from. And then in no time, you could hear the clock, clock, clock of helicopters and motorized units coming up. And then a couple of infantry units, uh, squads came and were charging through the square and they were breaking into buildings and going up to the rooftop looking for where the fire was coming from. And we just watched what these troops were, were doing. And we brought one guy down from one rooftop and, and fortunately, I don't think any Americans were hurt. None of the locals were were hurt, but you could hear bullets pinging off a wall near where we we were. And, you know, correspondents get all the glory, but cameramen, sound people, producers, they're often right there. And at one point, I was in this round thing in the middle of this intersection, and the Marines were, were aiming their weapons, looking, and I saw one guy just kind of lift his body up a little and, and point his weapon. And I looked up and I said, no, 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 don't shoot. That's, that's my producer. That's my producer. And, and Kennedy had apparently gone running to where the car was parked because we, we had some flak vests in there. And he was lugging these three heavy flak vests towards the intersection and kind of hunched over as if that would protect him. And you know, this Marine, he didn't know who the hell he was. I don't think John ever believed that that really happened. And uh, when we would, we talked about it sometime later, I said, so you think that a correspondent wouldn't care if somebody killed his producer? I said, that's only true sometimes, but it's usually, it's usually in the cutting room, not out in a, in a war zone. So we, uh, you know, I, uh, the cameraman who was with me was a, was a Brit and a sound man also. And, and just think of it. They went running down the street into Bedlam. And, and you might say, well, why? Because, not because they're the enemy of the people, because they think it's their job. And I've always thought that when, a, when America's treasure is at risk, and by that I, I mean young men and women on, on a mission somewhere, that uh, reporters ought to be there. We ought to be there. And we ought to be there to show what it smells like, what it looks like, what it feels like, what the pain is like, what the anguish is like. I mean, that's, that's an important task for a, a reporter. Um, when I used to do speeches about various things, I 
uh, used to say that in 88%, and I don't know what the figure is now, in 88% of the countries of the world, there is either no press freedom or a, a, a very small amount of press freedom. 88% of the nations of the world. And you know, nobody I knew who would uh, attack the media to my face or complain to my face would rather live there than live in the United States. Morton Dean is retired now, but still very busy. He likes to quote the actor George Burns, who lived to be 100 and used to say his attitude was that he couldn't die yet because he was still booked. Dean's latest project is his documentary, American Medevac, for which he tracked down several Vietnam veterans that appeared in a report he did for CBS in 1971. Here's a portion of his conversation with Dan Stevenson, who is one of two medevac pilots he was able to find and include in the documentary. Finally, a wonderful moment, a reunion. Very casual. Chit-chat about anything but Vietnam. For that, he reluctantly agreed to talk if we would meet him miles away in a remote campsite where he lived in an RV. To me, it was a surprising lifestyle for a vet who had gone to medical school and become a doctor. Among his patients were other combat veterans and their families. He helped them cope with PTSD and other psychological wounds. First of all, I, I, I had, when I worked there, I had a letter that was called an open letter to the veterans' families. And I said, you, you have to expect certain things about your returning veteran. Uh, he or she has been on the line, uh, has risked her, her, his or her life for the, the protection of their peers. Uh, and what I mean by that is you stand the line and, and, and you're on call. You're standing there while your friends sleep. It may be two in the morning, but they're sleeping because you're there. And then when you want to sleep, you know your friends are out there and you trust your life to someone else. And when you do that implicitly and completely, when you survive it and your friend's still there, you feel like you let them down because you can't protect them anymore because they're there in your home. So I tell a lot of vets and their families, your veteran had love for their fellow soldiers that you don't understand, and I wish you could understand it. You see the guys in the documentary, Brian Fahili and Dan Stevenson, they both talked about uh, having problems with PTSD, um, and Brian Fahili talked about how his P PTSD got worse after 9-11. Wasn't that an amazing mm. thing when he said that? Yeah. I thought so too, yeah. What have you come to understand about PTSD and its impact on veterans? That it's real, that it is so deep that it may, for many people, all, always be there. Dan Stevenson, the co-pilot, a while back, he and I talked, you know, rather frequently, not every week, but you know, we talk. And we've become each other's shrinks. And uh, one, one day uh, I got a call from him and, hey, how you doing, Warren? And, oh, I'm doing great, Dan. How's Mary? I said, oh, she's fine. And what's going on with you? And he said, well, it works good. And, but I, I know him well enough to know when he's having a problem. 
So uh, I said, so everything's great. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, I don't think that's why you called this time. And he said, Mort, I just feel like shit. And he said, I, I'm, it just keeps coming back. And I sometimes just don't know what to do about it. Why does it keep coming back? And I talk to him on the telephone rather frequently now. Uh, invited him to a reunion of the America division. And when Dan, I introduced Dan after the showing of the documentary, and he got a standing ovation. And he, you know, he said afterward that he was kind of embarrassed by that. And, but he did get up and talk for a few minutes. And I'd like to think that it, it, it has changed his life because he knows that people care about him. In less than half an hour, we've traveled from Tehran to Saudi Arabia and from Kosovo to Vietnam. But before we wrap up this third of our three episodes with Mort, we've still got time to have him tell us one more story. If you listened to the first of these three episodes, you may have heard him mention just in passing that there was that one time he helped capture a killer. As a radio reporter in Boston for a couple of years, I had been on TV maybe two or three times. Once when I captured a killer and the TV people thought that that would make a good television story. And on occasion, they would send me down to do some interviews in Washington with a TV camera. And so when I spoke to him a second time, I made certain to ask him to describe how that transpired. I, I have to make an admission as I tell this this story. I uh, got to know the killer because he was a bartender in a joint I used to go to and drink a little too much. So I um, I was just a kid reporter working for a radio station in Boston, and I read a saw a story in the paper or on the wire one one morning that this guy was wanted for murdering his wife, for killing his wife. And I thought, oh, my God, that's the bartender in in the bar where I go. So um, I thought, well, how can I do this story? And I just tucked that away. And that very day, I had to go down to City Hall in Boston to look up a record for some story I was working on, a real estate record. And uh, I came out of City Hall and diagonally across from the old City Hall was the Parker House Hotel. And uh, I stopped dead because there was the guy who was wanted by the police rushing into the hotel. So um, there was a cop on the beat big, heavy, ruddy-faced cop directing traffic. And I, I went over and said, hey, you know that guy that the, he went, yeah, what about him? And I said, he just walked into the hotel there. And he said, yeah, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, I thought you'd want to know. And he, he, he said, it was a great quote. He said, look, I'm uh, about six months away from retirement. I ain't getting involved. Call headquarters. So. So I went into the hotel, and I went up to the desk, 
And I, I, I said, there's a guy who just came into this hotel. And as I was talking, I looked around and there was the guy. He just came out of the elevator and, and walked somewhere, then came back in. And I excused myself and watched, as a good reporter would, what floor did the elevator stop on? And I went back over to the desk and said, yeah, he's at six or eight, whatever it was. And uh, the desk clerk said, let me go get the house detective. Hotels had a detective. He's also a bellhop. And he came over. And uh, and so uh, we talked. I told him the story. He, he said, uh, well, uh, what do you want me to do about it? I said, I just thought you might want to know. And he said, well, I really don't want to know. So, uh, <laughs> so great lesson, right? So I, uh, I eventually asked for the manager of the hotel to go into an office and I'm talking to him and uh, he calls the uh, detective in and he said, I don't know anything about this. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He walks out and, and uh, I'm thinking, well, nothing's going to happen. And just then the desk clerk came in and said, look, uh, he's right. The guy is here. I did see him. He's under an assumed name in such and such a room. So I said, hey, thanks to all of you. And uh, I went and, and, and called the police. And um, they, they showed up. And I introduced myself. There were two plainclothes detectives. And uh, and the manager of the hotel came over and said, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's drunk. He doesn't know. And, and so I got angry at him. And I said to the cops, all you have to do is knock on the door to prove me right. They said, okay, come on with us. So we go up, get off the elevator. The cops pull their little pistol. And one of the cops grabs me by the by the, my collar, back of my neck, and pulls me in front of him, and then bangs on the door with the edge of the pistol. You're the human and, shield in this story. Yeah, yeah, I'm a human shield. And but you know, I used to be. Um, it's not that I didn't think about that, but I also thought, oh, this is great, you know, good story. And the door opens, and there is the bartender, David, and he stares at me because I know him. And then he, 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 he looks and the guns are now on either side of my face pointing at him and he puts his hands up and uh, I said to him, I said, David, I hope you're not the guy. And, and, and uh, so I got back to the office and wrote up a story for radio. Uh, I asked the TV people if they wanted to do the story, and they were not. There used to be a separation between radio and TV, and they were not uh, very interested. And but I eventually did a, a, a little on camera. And so did he end up in prison? Well, yeah, yeah. He he got eight to twelve years, and um, I was really worried about him for a long, long time because. Uh, uh, a, a friend of mine who was an investigative reporter for one of the tabloids in Boston uh, called me once and we were just yakking and he said, oh, remember the guy? Uh, well, when he gets out, you ought to be careful. And I said, why? And he said, well, 
some of the cops I know believe that he's being enlisted as an enforcer for one of the the two mobs in Boston. There was an Irish mob and an Italian mob. And I said, oh, well, look, I will, I will watch myself. But in fact, when I hang up for a view, I think I'm going to lock the door. And so as we let Morton Dean go make sure that his doors are locked, I want to thank him again for being so generous with his time and sharing with us these entertaining, informative, and insightful stories about his years as a television news correspondent for CBS and ABC. You can learn more about his excellent documentary, American Medevac, by using the links available on our News Knowledge website. I'm Russ Mason, and for all of us here at the Vanderbilt Television News Archive, we thank you for listening.